According to a survey conducted by the Stillman School of Business at Seton Hall University, it found that 61% of Americans agree athletes should have the capability and ability to support social justice issues that they care about. However, more than a third say it does hinder their ability to watch sports and treat it as an escape. Professor Sean Anderson is an associate professor of organizational communication and faculty advisor for the Institute of Business Ethics and Sustainability at Loyola Marymount University. His teachings and research are focused on the effective use of corporate and social responsibility within and outside of organizations, particularly sports organizations. And Professor Anderson joined me this week to have an in-depth conversation about sports, social responsibility, its culture, and the intersection of athletes, their athletic performance, and their right and responsibility to speak up when they see social justice issues which move the needle of progress forward. It was a wide-ranging conversation, which I'm happy now to share with all of you. So, without further delay, I'm Kevin McShane. Let's have this conversation. Take a moment to welcome you to the program, and I'm super excited to learn how you help to inspire the minds of our next generation. Professor, great to see you this afternoon, and thank you so very much for being here. Yeah, again, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Professor, I know that your work uh, surrounds uh, both business ethics and uh, uh, communication and uh, a little bit of sports as well, so I'm wondering if you can tell me about all the great work that you do to inspire the minds of our next generation. Yeah, so uh, I'm a uh, associate professor at Loyola Marymount University out here in Los Angeles, and uh, my work, um, as you mentioned, looks at uh, social responsibility in the business world, uh, in, in particularly in the world of sports. Um, I know most people tend to look at sports from a fan perspective as far as like you know who's excited to go to a game who's excited to watch sports on tv but i look at sports from a different angle i i look at sport as how does it uh relate to several of our societal issues uh that we see when it comes to uh politics uh diversity and inclusion um culture 
And so I, I take that work and I conduct research. Um, I teach classes on race, cult race culture and sport. I teach a class on organizational communication where um, we discuss how supervisors communicate with employees, how organizations as a whole communicate to their various stakeholders. So I've been doing this work now for about a decade, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm still on fire about it. You would, well, Professor, I always say, if you find something you're passionate about, it's not you don't work a day in your life, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. Professor, I'm fascinated to ask you about the social responsibility you think athletes have in today's uh, climate, both from a politi political, social, and a psychological standpoint. What is the social responsibility of athletes, in your opinion? Yeah, so, you know, we're in an age today where um, pretty much information can be found anywhere, whether it's the 24-hour news cycle, to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, what, whatever uh, social medium that's out there. And athletes, like never before, you know, particularly high-profile athletes, have found themselves talking about uh, various social issues, um, but not only engaging in, in the protests, like Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee, but we're now seeing athletes engaging in social responsibility from the perspective of we are now shifting from the protests to conversations on policy change and policy reform when it comes to acts of criminal justice, to um, impacting uh, youth when it comes to better educational opportunities. Um, we're also seeing athletes talk about community development initiatives, um, police brutality, uh, things of that nature. And so they're teaming with nonprofit leaders, they're teaming with uh, local municipalities to push an agenda that's meant to help people who have been marginalized in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Professor, as you know, earlier uh, this week, we we saw the return of, of Brittany Griner to the stage and yeah. all the, that went into that. So I'm just curious about, now that that uh, situation has come to a close, how do you think uh, we should view that situation as a whole? And uh, additionally, I'm also curious to ask you about a pay equality for women in sports yeah. as well and your thoughts there. Yeah, so, you know, with, with the Brittany Griner situation, you, you know, we, we have this umbrella term of sport and politics, right, or, or the athlete activists. Now we're seeing how sports <laughs> can infiltrate uh, foreign policy, right, uh, because we know that with Brittany Griner, you know, being brought back to the U.S., um, the exchange for that was for Russia to receive uh, a, a a prisoner that was held in the U.S. as well, and so now sports has infiltrated that 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 conversation on foreign policy. Um, it also talks about you know what we were willing as a country to sacrifice uh, in the name of not only Brittany Griner but in the name of sport in and of itself. But then, like you said, it comes back to 
where we are as a society when it comes to how we value um, our athletes. And um, I would say that the, the, the team that probably has the most success right now um, relative to pay equity is the U.S. women's soccer team who just won a case on um, increasing the amount of money that they will receive. But we're talking about the WNBA who is still having a struggle with competing with the NBA on pay equity. And, and we're, again, having athletes, male and female, um, come out about this issue but where we are as far as making any long-term progression still remains to be seen. However, um, it is something that's on the docket for the sport justice movement, as I call it. Yeah, absolutely. And Professor, I also know that you I talk a lot about corporate social responsibility for organizations. So uh, picking up on that point, why do you think the corporate world and sort of Corporate America fits into this equation as well. Yeah, so, you know, we think about this concept of corporate social responsibility. It's, uh, uh, we've seen it, right, over the last decade um, relative to um, organizations maybe creating commercials talking about, you know, we want to protect the planet or we want to have a, a diverse and inclusive workspace. While that is being mentioned, here within the last decade, the concept of corporate social responsibility is actually um, older than we uh, would imagine. It, it's something that came out um, around the civil rights era, so, so late 40s, early 1950s, as this concept that while we want organizations to be profitable, we want them to you know, grow, become global, be big business, make a lot of money, there is a social component to that organization as well that they have a responsibility to not only their stakeholders, but they have a, a responsibility to positively impact their employees, um, their business partners, and society at large in the sense of saying that there's a triple bottom line of people, profit, planet that uh, organizations have, have a responsibility for is not to say that they can resolve all the world's problems in the next two, three years. But if you're wanting to be good to your customers, you should also be good to society. Yeah, absolutely. And Professor, I don't know how much research you did on me, but I'll share just a little bit about myself. So I was born with what's called uh, spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Simply means that I don't have enough oxygen in my legs to walk normally. And I originally went uh, went to school to become a, a sports reporter. So I was fascinated uh, to have you on the show today to ask you about diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in sports media and how we can help uh, more folks with uh, disability disabilities become visible in the space. Yeah, uh, Kevin, you know, it's funny. I grew up also wanting to be uh, a sports reporter. I um, was saying that I want to be the next great Stuart Scott, right? Uh, growing up watching him um, on ESPN, uh, giving his unique take on uh, the world of sport. But, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, 
where we are shifting. You know, we see people like, um, I'm sure you know Stephen A. Smith, mm -hmm. uh, sort of take your first take. Um, you know, um, you're seeing Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless kind of be the front line of, of, of the Fox Sports uh, platform. But, you know, here's the thing. Uh, companies have to begin to recognize the uniqueness that many people can bring to the table. You know, whether it's somebody um, if, uh, uh, of a different ethnicity, um, you know, um, like you say, again, uh, someone who uh, is dealing with, uh, you know, sex accessibility. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody from those particular backgrounds have something to say. They have a unique spin on the world of sports. Um, you know, I, I think one of the platforms that would be great uh, for individuals from all these backgrounds to talk about is, is the global platform of the Olympics and having the opportunity to talk about all the sports that are being um, planned through that. And so while organizations are understanding that they need to change and they need to be accessible and they need to be equitable. Um, they, they need that push. They need somebody to go in and say, Hey, you need to open your door and you need to be okay with the fact that everybody deserves an opportunity to, to be on this platform. And particularly when it comes to sports, because sports is it's a fun thing to talk about in some cases. You're well, uh, Professor. I, I, I think uh, sports is a bonding agent that brings people together, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, it's here's the thing. We do, at any given point, uh, would love to go to a, a, a game and you're just sitting there and you're sitting in the atmosphere, you're smelling a concession stand food, and, you know, you're just in, in, enjoying that time. Um Sports, and I believe this is the former South African president, uh, the late Nelson Mandela, who said, you know, sport has the power to change the world. It has the ability to bring people together. You know, it, it's more powerful than he, he was saying, more powerful than governments when it comes to ending, um, you know, discrimination and, and prejudice. And it, well, that was his hope, you know. And so sport is, is a catalyzing um, platform, I believe, that, you know, we, we can enjoy games, but we can also share our different cultures and understand from each other. Um, I think that, that that's the, the, the message that President Mandela was trying to say back in 2000. And we're seeing that today, you know, it, it still could be that for many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And now, uh, uh, Professor, I know that your work has been uh, featured in uh, uh, certain publications like uh, Psychology of Popular uh, Media Culture, the International Journal of uh, Sports uh, Communication and uh, Sports Marketing at the Sports Marketing Association Conference. So tell me about how the sense of pride that you have that your work and your findings have been seen by, by a, a, a variety of uh, different audiences. Yeah, so, you know, it's 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 always a joy uh, when it comes to academia to see your work published because uh, what many people don't know is that it, it takes months 
you know, months to write a 25 to 30 page paper on a research topic that you, you love. And the process is you submit it to these journals and then there are typically three reviewers who will essentially scrutinize your paper to see, you know, where you're doing things right and where you're do doing things wrong. And there's this running joke in academia that reviewer one will really love your paper, but reviewer two hates the paper <laughs> for, for all its glory. And that person will let you know how bad that paper is from top to bottom. But in, in, in all seriousness, um, once you go through that process and you make those revisions and the editor of the journal says, well done, we are happy to publish this paper, you know, after about six to nine months of, of the process, you know, it's, it's a great feeling and it's great to see that something that you truly care about. Like for me, for instance, again, with uh, the intersection of sport and social responsibility, it's, it's, it's a great feeling. And every time they would send me the link to the paper, I would, I would share it on all my social media platforms. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to congratulate you on that. And I, I know that I appreciate you're, it. Yeah, you're welcome. I know that your latest work uh, is surrounding the 1968 Olympics and, and the Olympic Games. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about what you're currently working on. Yeah, so um, actually I'm uh, working on two books. So the first book is is actually coming out February 8th, uh, 2023. It's the uh, the Black Athlete Revolt, the Sport Justice Movement in the Age of uh, Black Lives Matter, which takes a look at how athlete activism has sort of become revitalized since the BLM movement began. And, and it talks about how we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of BLM and how athletes have catalyzed social media as a way to push their agendas forward for social reform. And that's the, the book that's, again, coming out uh, in February. Um, I'm currently working on my second book. So again, the, the academic work never stops, right? But my second book is now focused on looking at how organizations, sport organizations in particular, are trying to set up their social responsibility initiatives, but they need a framework. They need a, a platform or, or, or a standard um, to be able to put those initiatives out there for them to be successful. And the second book is focused on building such a platform. And but that probably will come out uh, somewhere summer of 2024. Well, I wish you um, best of luck with those, Professor. And I, I want to know now how, when you look at uh, the sports landscape today and related to business, Professor, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you define good moral character and ethics when it comes to the intersection of both uh, sports media and business. Yeah, so, you know, we, it's interesting. Uh, again, Kevin, that we, we live in a time now where um, news is proliferated everywhere, right? Where in times past, if an athlete is interviewed and that goes out on ESPN or any other news platform, that's it. That's the story. But we're seeing 
the 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 landscape of sport, media, and business changing um, like never before. So, for example, athletes are becoming more and more vocal about their stories and their interests. And so, we saw um, Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Derek Jeter uh, create the platform of the Players Tribune, where the stories are from athletes about sports and the the human interest side of of what they do. Um, we're seeing athletes um, also becoming media moguls. They're buying their own media platforms. Um, they're they're spreading their own messages, um, and they're also using their platforms to hold the leagues that they play for accountable to the social uh, justice issues that they say that they wanted to fight for. And so this is where we we get to the point now to where we see this concept called brand or sports brand activism, where um, brands like Nike, Under Armour, are, are, are now trying to push out uh, these initiatives of wanting to be there for social injustice and wanting to fight for it and, and wanting to uh, send messages out of hope uh, that our society can change. And so we've gone from this sort of one-sided media focus to where it's only the athlete getting interviewed to now the athlete being able to share their own stories and messages. And um, I see a strong future with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Professor, I also was curious to get your opinion on sort of eliminating a partisanship because you know, one of the things that I always say is that you can disagree with someone without degrading them. But when you look at American culture today, we're so quick to go to our partisan corners, whether it be uh, in politics and sports or in business. Yeah. So how do you think we cre create more bridges of unity, even when we disagree with people? You know, that's that's a great question, because I, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, upbringing to experiences to, you know, not really taking the time to understand somebody from a different perspective. Right. Uh, that's the first thing that I think uh, us as a society uh, should do instead of relying on the stereotypes that we've known to see, you know, over the course of our lives. Uh, why don't you take the time to listen to a person that says, hey, I'm a black man, for example. I, I want to work and I want to have a, a great job and support my family. You know, don't always look at me as a threat. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ex-football player. So, you know, I know when I walk down the street, I could look intimidating. But the thing is, don't rely on that. Just don't try to run away from me or run to the other side of all just because, you know, you think that I'm a threat. I'm just simply probably walking down the street to <laughs> catch up to the ice cream truck that I heard the signal from, the, you know, earlier that day or something. Or I'm just walking down the street just to walk outside. And so I think as a society to kind of move past that, uh, you know, denigrating, degrading concept that we have not been known to, to do here over the last few decades. We really need to take the opportunity to sit down and understand, listen, 
but also comprehend. Don't just sit and say, I'm going to listen to you. But every time that you talk about a particular issue that bothers you, you have to interject and put your spin on it. No, everybody has their own unique uh, power. They have their own unique struggle, you know, and they have their, their unique voice. And we need to take take the time to pay attention to that. Absolutely. Everyone has uh, opinion and perspective that uh, deserves to be heard. Don't you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Professor, I, I'm curious to ask you as an educator, what do you think has been your greatest moment of impact? There was, there was one lesson you hope your students take away when you teach them. I'm curious to, to know what that is and why. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning of the semester, I I, I usually do a uh, what we call syllabus day where we as professors run down what the students are going to learn for the entire semester. And I always tell my students, hey, you know, this is college now. I'm not sure of what your experiences were in high school, you know, but you're bringing that to a new stage where I'm going to challenge you. Um, you know, you, you're going to work hard, but I guarantee that by the end of the semester, you will see things uh, from a new perspective. Um, for example, you know, I, I teach um, a, a, a research class and a theory class where students kind of take the concepts of the stereotypes and the prejudices that they've kind of learned about or know about from their life and gain an understanding as to why these things are created in the first place. And so you, every time I teach this course, at the end of the semester, students are like, oh my God, you changed my life. You know, you helped me see how, you know, things in our society are, are often constructed and, you know, if we're not careful, we can, you know, fall to the wrong understanding of things. And so that's usually the, the, the great feeling that I get when it comes to, you know, educating our society. And then when we're talking about teaching sport classes where students are able to take a listen to um, perhaps a sports psychologist who is talking about how he or she, you know, got into their field, or the general manager of a sports team that talks about, you know, you see the lights in the camera and the media, but you know, the behind the scenes work is a lot of time and a lot of effort to take these sort of big academic concepts and help break it down for them to understand um, is, is really one of my tasks as an educator. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Professor, I just have a few more questions for you. And the first has to do with what are the other steps that we have to take to eliminate racism in sports, in sports, particularly when it comes to hiring more uh, black coaches to positions of prominence or uh, prominent positions in sports in general. So what do you think is the key eliminating racism in sports? You know, one big thing is we have to stop looking at black coaches, black athletes 
as less intelligent, right? Because I think that's typically the the mark that's set against um, athlete, uh, athletes and coaches of color uh, to get into certain positions. You know, we 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 have this the the Rooney Rule in the NFL, for example, that says that for any team that's looking to hire a head coach or a position coach, such as an offense coordinator, defensive coordinator, or what have you, you have to at least interview, you know, one uh, coach from uh, a minority background. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't guarantee that that coach is going to get hired, but it just says that you have to at least interview that person. But in recent years, that rule has kind of turned into uh, sort of a, a platform of tokenism because it's it's as if to say that, okay, the owner of these NFL teams, let's just go ahead and interview this this one black coach or, uh, you know, this one Hispanic coach or this one um, a woman uh, who wants to coach just so we don't have to hear from the media that says that we're a racist team. Uh, but if the goal, if the goal is to be a more open and just society, particularly when it comes to sport and, and trying to eradicate racism, we have to get serious about who we're trying to hire and why we're trying to hire. And at the end of the day, no one is saying to hire, for example, a black coach just to hire a black coach and this coach is not qualified. We know that there are plenty of qualified candidates out there who are black or who are Hispanic, um, but we have to be able to give them those opportunities and not fall wayside to the backlash of public opinion who who in our society today says that, oh, you're just hiring this person because they're black. No, you, you have to move past that. You have to really hire this person, give this person the proper opportunity to succeed and then we'll probably be able to see some change over time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now the thing worth having is uh, easy, easy to accomplish, right? Yeah. Always takes work, absolutely. Uh, Professor, my final question for you has to do with your own personal and professional legacy and how you want that to be defined. You know, another great question. One thing that I've been actually doing um, recently, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm turning 40 in a couple of months. I'm not shy about that. But with that, I will say that I, in my work, in my life, um, in the things that I do on a consistent basis with family, friends, is that I want to be as authentic as possible um we all are people on this in this world who we try all try to do the best that we can we all make mistakes um you know i'm not a perfect person but i my goal is to be again as authentic as possible i don't i don't want to live a life of trying to fit in or live a life of trying to um you know just just put other people down while I'm trying to build myself up. You know, I want to see everybody win. And 
with that, you know, I, I want to be there. I want to be a supportive person. I want to be a, not only in the classroom, but in life. And with the work that I do in sports, I want to be sure that we not only are able to enjoy sports and the platform and the entertainment and the joy that it brings us, but I also want to be the person that holds these leaders accountable. And, you know, if you're going to say that you're going to build a new stadium in a community, for example, then how are you going to help that community support itself instead of just coming in, you know, gentrifying the community and these people have to leave? Well, we need to build ways in which everybody here can win. And that's the type of life that I want to lead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Professor, you're off to a running start in that regard. And I want to thank you for the good work that you do to promote and advance social responsibility and culture in America. And I want to thank you for joining me today. And just before we get out of here, Professor, if people want to yeah, so you can uh, reach out to me on Twitter. It's uh, at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Mark, M-A-R-Q, Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. Um, the same thing with uh, Instagram. And you can also reach me at my website at www.SeanMarkAnderson.com. Well, Professor, I really want to thank you for engaging in conversation and Joining me this afternoon. It's most appreciated. No, thank you. And and also, I wanted to say that uh, my book, uh, The Black Athlete Revolt, uh, The Sport and Justice Movement in the Age of Black Lives Matter, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold, whether that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other site that's out there. Well, fabulous. Have a great day of uh, making a difference. And thanks again for uh, uh, jo joining me in conversation today. Thank you.